Lucas are trying to get you a bed. Get you all fixed up and out of here. How's John? He's good. He's at the co-op board meeting. So what did the doctor say? Have you seen him? What does he say? I have pneumonia. No, I know, but they've, they've got you on antibiotics. I'm sure that's what all of this is. I had pneumonia. Huh? Felt like somebody lit a fire in my chest when I was ten or something. Or five. I don't know. Hello and welcome to the Lone Acting Nominees Podcast, a show where I'm joined each week by a guest to discuss a movie that only received one Oscar nomination, that being for one of its performances. We'll talk about the performance in question, the movie as a whole, and its place in the Oscar race, among other things. I'm Gordon McNulty, and this week I'm joined once again by Christoph to discuss Bruce Davison's Oscar-nominated performance in the 1990 film Longtime Companion. Christoph, good to have you back. Hello, Gordon. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, uh, tell me about what uh, drew you to this movie to be your sixth episode. Is that right? I believe it's sixth, yeah. Um, as much as I enjoy talking to you about train wrecks like The Man in the Glass Booth or really bad films like Tribute, just sometimes I want to talk about a really great film. And without spoiling too much about my thoughts about this film. Um, Longtime Companion is, for me, maybe not the best film with a low acting nomination, but it would it's probably in the top five for me. And it's certainly, uh, certainly, probably the greatest film I have a chance to talk to you. The only other one that comes close is Maria Full of Grace, which we did before. Uh, so I really wanted to discuss this really great and also a uh, kind of important film so yes i'm very happy that i that, that this was still available and still available and i could claw myself to get this episode yeah this is one that uh, a, a few people have mentioned in like oh here's like a list of five movies that i could talk about this one has come up a few times but you were you were the first one to mention it all the way back when you were picking your very like it was one of the ones you mentioned alongside Man in the Glass Booth for that, like, what, exactly. like seventh episode or something. Like, this has been airmarked for you for uh, well over two years at this point, which is weird to think about that I've been doing this show for that long. But, uh, yeah, this this was my first time watching the movie. It was, uh, like, I, I just finished right before we started recording, and so I'm, I'm still sitting with it, obviously. But, uh, yeah, it's a very, very well done movie especially for the time especially for the subject matter and for how it handles it um we'll get into more of you know specific thoughts as we get into it but uh yeah this this was a uh an enlightening watch uh for a movie that i was aware of generally like i, I knew what it was about but i didn't really know the ins and outs of it and I, I was really impressed by the way it handles the subject matter and the the just the general treatment of it as it lays it out i mean it's it's in the in in the way it's an important film as it was the first major movie that was released theatrically that was dealing with the aids crisis uh but it's not a film that shouts its own importance from the rooftop so you have yeah. no grand speeches no sad music you have no 
giant monologues and no people hammering home how important this topic is. It's it's telling stories of ordinary people, ordinary affluent people yeah. uh, who uh, are whose life are impacted by the AIDS crisis. Most of the characters die in the course of the film. I mean, only three of the main characters survive this film, uh, which is uh, impactful quite in it itself. And uh, it's it it never it never comes across as something that wants to say this is important and uh, th this is our great Oscars movie, which we have made to win awards and also to talk about this important subject. Yeah, it, it's much more restrained in in how it handles everything, which I was uh, very impressed by. Uh, so we are talking about Longtime Companion from 1990, directed by Norman Renee, written by Craig Lucas, starring Stephen Caffrey, Patrick Cassidy, Brian Cousins, Bruce Davison, John Dossett, Mark Lamos, Dermot Mulroney, Mary Louise Parker, Michael Scheffling, and Campbell Scott. Uh, Don't forget yeah. Tony Shalhoub. To yes, Tony Shalhoub shows up for a scene, uh, which was... Uh, Nice to see him. A little pretty big night, which Campbell Scott directed. Uh, uh, the movie uh, had its premiere October 11th, 1989. The Mill Valley Film Festival played, IMDb said the US Film Festival on January 21st, 1990. But looking into other things, like there was, I couldn't find anything else about that from that listing. I think it means Sundance. Because I know the movie played Sundance, and that wasn't listed on the IMDb release page. So I can only assume that means Sundance. Uh, but it's listed as the U.S. Film Festival for some reason. Uh, and then it had its U.S. release on May 11th of 1990. Uh, and yeah, like you said, first theatrically released major film to deal with the AIDS crisis and to like direct... Like, I don't know. I, I don't know if other movies had maybe like referenced it in passing which i i it would feel strange if it just had, i mean strange but also not that it strange would, that it, if would it be had strange gone. but i wouldn't be surprised yeah uh, uh but yeah the first to directly address it and uh we can talk about all of that as as we go but let's start off talking about our nominee here uh bruce davison who, who this is my third film of his talking about on the show very strange and and uh uh, uh, just the trilogy of movies that those are uh, Last Summer and Six Degrees of Separation, and then this. Like, y y you'd be hard pressed to find three more different movies that I've talked about starring the same actor. But uh, yeah, uh, what what are your like initial thoughts on his performance that he's giving here? I mean, uh, Long Time Companion is basically uh, an ensemble movie, but it's kind of easy to see why Bruce Davison was picked out during the film's awards run was basically the awards magnet the film had because while this film doesn't have any big speeches or uh, great monologues he, he emerges as uh, one of the strongest characters as a pillar of strength for his partner and also for the community at large and he has he's the focus character of the film's most memorable scene because there's one really very touching scene where his partner is dying and he's holding his hand and he's talking to him with a cracking voice that it's okay and that he can let go. He's basically he's basically holding his hand as he's dying and trying to 
make his death as peaceful as possible. And this is really an incredible scene. I must say, I, must say, I, I have a heart of stone. I, I watch movies and I don't cry a lot. I had tears in my eyes when this scene played because he's, he's really very good in this scene. And the, I, I don't know if this was his Oscar clip. I would be surprised if anything else from this movie was his Oscar yeah. clip because it's, it's so clearly the centerpiece of the film, the centerpiece of his performance that uh, as unassuming as his film is as a whole, this is the one scene that stands out. And it stands out in a way that, like, I mean, I mean, so so often, especially with his character in particular, I kept thinking, okay, and this is the part where the movie does this, and it never does that next thing that you're expect. Like, at no point in that scene where he's by his bedside, uh, uh, watching his his partner like slowly sort of fade in and out, and and like he he's basically catatonic at this point. He's sort of mumbling incoherently and you keep you keep thinking okay and this is the point where bruce davison starts crying this is the part where he starts like breaking down this is the part where he finally gets emotional because the whole character up to this point has been like nonchalant kind of to a fault about the entire thing he's he's very uh dismissive in a positive way it's a very interesting perspective on this character where like he definitely carries himself with the the like you mentioned the affluence that this character who's who has like a trust fund and he's the, every so often they'll reference how he's like exorbitantly rich and never really mentions it himself but it, it's it's a thing that it's like one of the first things we know about his character and he sort of carries that like that that background with him throughout all of this where he feels kind of not untouchable but but he, I think, out of the main cast, takes the longest to like really really feel the weight of, of the AIDS crisis. He he's not dismissive, but like the the most. Oh well, you know this will blow over. This is they would the doctors would have said if John had you know if it was with his immune system, he just has pneumonia. People just get pneumonia. Like he he's very willing to be very optimistic about everything uh even when it's very clearly not a case where optimism is helpful or or you know reasonable he he still has that like spark of hope that is is a two sides it's is a, a double-edged sword there cuz it's like helpful you know it, it's it's helpful to have that positive outlook but it also feels a little out of touch. And Davison does a really good job of never making it feel too much of one or the other. He's he's never feels like a character that's so out of touch that you're like horrified with his reactions, but he's also not so like just blindly optimistic that it feels like he's just, you know, not taking things seriously. It's a very fine line that he does a really good job with up through that scene where he's like, talking him through is like it's okay you can let go you can let go you you uh because that's what he's saying is like let's go that, his his partner who's uh you know drifting in and out of consciousness is saying i want to go let's go when he is you know uh uh intelligible uh and davison is just sort of kneeling by his side saying yeah you, you can go it's it's okay you can let go you can let go of let, let go of all that and it feels like it, it 
again, it, it never dips too much into the expected in a way that I, I was really impressed by how especially that scene handles the the emotion without feeling obvious. And interesting enough about that scene, um, I have read that Bruce Davison actually wanted to play the scene bigger and louder and that the director, Norman Renee, talked him down and restrained him, said he didn't want this. He didn't want this to be the big dramatic scene. He wanted it to be quieter like that. I think uh, Norman Renee's uh, assistant's uh, assistant later told us in an interview. And so, so I find it interesting that this centerpiece of this performance, uh, which probably got him the Oscar na- nomination, uh, a huge part of that is actually due to the director who dialed the actor down and apparently had a very clear idea, a very clear vision of the film he wanted to make, and also had a clear idea that a huge dramatic moment probably would have overshadowed and been too much and would would have maybe tipped it too much over the edge uh, to something he didn't want to see or didn't want to have in his film. Yeah, and it's also, like, it would have been out of character. Uh, yeah. It, it, it's, I mean, it, it speaks to uh, Renee's, you know, handle of the project as a whole that he would know that that's not how the character uh, would react like in in the scenes prior and following like David is very laid back it's a version of grief you don't really see all that often uh, in movies or TV or or just in, in general depicted where he's like emoting but like really kind of not the the there's a point where everyone else is over there at the apartment after um after Sean has died uh and he says so, someone asks him something and he's like he, he has like a, a little moment of like oh he he says i don't remember what it is that he says but he says something really like emotionally resonant and then without missing a beat is like hey do you want a drink i i do i'm going to go get myself a drink and it's just like checked out but not in a way that feels like he's avoiding his I, grief i would say makes sense. he is someone who is used to being the stronger person he is someone who is used to uplifting others who is used to showing strength to others and it's probably part of his character's character that at this moment when he's very vulnerable because he lost the person that he loved and he knew for a long time that he's going to lose him uh he's just uh, he maybe isn't showing his vulnerability as tries to somehow play away over it and somehow uh try to make it seem like he is a stronger person than he actually is so he's we see him we see that there is something that this that is it's obviously moving him a lot but i also have a feeling that he is keeping his friends a bit at arm's length and isn't really letting his guard down entirely yeah and that actually just reminded me of what that line was that he just like sort of moves right past where uh i don't remember who it is but one of them is trying to console him and is like oh he was gone for a long time and he just goes no he wasn't Hey, I'm, do you want to drink? Like that's that's the lot. The like, yeah, he was like, you know, out for a while because we we see Sean like, uh, very quickly deteriorating mentally and physically over a, the span of years, uh, 
but it's still like e- even in a case like that and like i i had a, a similar sort of case in my family very recently where like even if you have someone that is like very very clearly showing these signs of of loss it still doesn't prepare you for when they do end up passing it, it's a very I don't. I don't know. It, it, it's this movie is. It, it really handles the complications of grief in a way that doesn't feel in any way overdone, which a lot of movies do. A lot of movies just depict a a a not sanitized, but just a a a version of grief that's like not real. That that is just not. I don't know. Um, and also, I mean, it is a quote-unquote AIDS movie because it is covering the AIDS crisis, but it's saying way the things that are way more profound and way more general as it's as it's here, this depicting this version of grief and how how it feels to hold someone's hand, hold the hand of a loved one as they are dying. Uh, so it it goes beyond just me merely portraying what it feels like to live through the AIDS crisis, but it makes uh, much grander points about uh, humanity and about very basic human emotions that everyone is going to go through at some point in their lives. Yeah. It's also worth noting that, like, this scene is very much the standout for Davison, but it's not like he's, you know, not doing anything the rest of the movie. He's very good throughout the whole movie, and it just happens to have this one like big centerpiece scene that elevates him, but like it's a strong performance all throughout. It's, it's uh, may- maybe part of that is that I was paying attention to him for the purposes of you know taking notes on his performance specifically, but he's he's really good, just like in all of those other scenes and in, in everything else in this movie. It's a very strong performance that again, like I said, really carries the the like background of the character and and the way that this character exists in the world as a gay man as an openly gay man uh that i i thought was it's just it's a very good performance it's a very lived in performance and it's also uh, it's also a bit of a layered performance because in the second scene of the film when uh, he is visiting his friend in the hospital who has aids you you see the way he reacts when talking to him or how he reacts in the hospital environment where he is clearly insecure. It's the only scene in the entire film where he is shown to be insecure. He is laughing insecurely. He is clearly a bit afraid because he doesn't he doesn't know what John is having. He is clearly fearing that he might have this, but at this point, was probably still mostly referred to as gay cancer, which was then very unknown and which was then very scary because it it was it wasn't understood not not by medical professionals and not by lay people as well. Yeah, and at we, this point, it's it's like April of 1980. I wrote down all the dates uh, uh, just so I could keep the scenes in mind, but it, that one is still like April of 1982. It's still very early on, and he it, it, yeah. again like it's the the through line for his character through much later than anyone else he's still very much like oh well i'm i'm sure it, it's not that i'm sure it's not that thing from the news i i he's just sick they don't even know they don't even know why he's sick They're, uh like the, the the scene ends with him like she would have said if 
they were sure. And that, that little pause uh, where he's not even really sure what to say that, that she would have said, uh, uh, but yeah, no, it, it's, it, it's a, it's a good scene for him where the focus isn't really on him as much, but it, when you're watching him, he's, he's really yeah. doing something. And also in, in the next scene, when his partner is beginning to suspect that he has AIDS uh, and he is absolutely sure he's saying, Oh, he, he, you don't have it. He is absolutely, he has no doubt that his partner has it. He still cares about his partner's mental health at that, po- at that moment to the point that uh, Sean, his partner, says that he feels like he's spoken to like a child. Um, but he cares about him and tries tries to convince him that he has nothing to fear from this disease. And because we know from the next scene uh, that by the next scene, Sean already has uh, AIDS and is in hospital uh, to be treated. He probably had AIDS at that moment when he was uh, expressing his fears. So uh, it's not that David is correct, is right by what he is saying, but he says it with a certain confidence that you almost believe that this this character is that tower of strength that he projects to be and that nothing could ever happen to him that you you get a feeling of security from him yeah and also in the next scene when his partner is in the hospital bed he is sitting in the hospital but not right next to him there's no he's not afraid to to touch him he's not afraid to embrace him he he's just just showing him the same warmth and the same, the same humanity that he's shown him the entire time, and, and like not not just sitting on the bed next to him, but very pointedly. And this was something that has a, a different connotation in today's age. But he's sitting there, uh, not wearing a mask, uh, while the other two people in in the room have the the hospital uh, respiratory masks on, which for a moment I was like, oh God, why are you not wearing a mask? And then I was like, oh. He's not wearing a mask. Oh, there's that's like a, a much sweeter uh, connotation in in this uh, in this context. But th- there was that little moment of like, oh god, he's not. And then I was like, oh yeah, no, that's that's not how this works. Um, but yeah, it, it's just little moments like that. Little moments like uh, also in that scene, how when he greets uh, uh, Campbell Scott's character is. Willie, he, when 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 Willie shows up and he, you know, gives him a hug and kisses him on the neck, it's just like a, a sign of affection, a sign of greeting, like, hey, you know, you have support here, you are loved here. It, it's just a little gesture like that that, like, you know, has later implications in the scene where Willie goes into the bathroom and like scrubs himself clean, scrubs that spot, and then over the course of the conversation they have in the hospital room comes to regret that and then he ends the scene kissing david back and it's just like a, a little moment of strength and and that he that, that david offers a, a little a little moment of compassion that i i i really i really liked the way the movie does that and gives it to you and like you know shows that that's a thing to to pay attention to in the scene but also doesn't like hammer it home that like hey Look at this thing that David's doing. Look at this like altruistic uh, act of kindness. It's just how he is. It's just who he is. And uh, Davison does a really good job of carrying that level of of charm, of confidence, of of projected strength and actual strength uh, in in his entire performance up to yeah. like the very end of his performance, uh, uh, the end of his last scene, other than the very ending. 
where he's just you know they're they're all sitting there after the funeral for Sean and he's he just says like uh or no I guess they don't show the funeral for not Sean after, after it's, the it's not after the funeral no, after yeah, his I, death yes. because it's always always only one day per year right yes so no yeah it's uh but but he ends it by saying it's just so fucking not strange and and in is that's just, it's a it's a line that rings true in a lot of different ways uh that i i don't even know if i really have the capacity to get too much further into but i i really related to that uh that just like sort of worn down finally like like a crack in the facade of his his finally the grief is really showing through in a way that like even isn't kind of like it's showing through that it's not showing through if that makes there's 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 a lot to that line that you can't really dissect it just is what it is i guess if that makes sense if if that if if that's if that tracks at all and isn't just me rambling about trying to i I, I, I don't know it it makes total sense especially as right after that the film goes for the absolute gut punch by cutting to 14 months later and David is dead. He, yeah. We, we haven't we haven't seen any symptoms from him. Uh, the last time, and the next scene is his own funeral. When we learn that shortly after Sean's funeral, he started having symptoms and then then died himself very quick, quickly within apparently a year, about a year, which also almost maybe as a way of speaking to the character of David. Of course, this has nothing to do with the Bruce's performance because Bruce Davison isn't in the movie from that point. But it speaks to the character of David that although he had, the, he must have had the virus in himself, the, the outbreak, almost as if because he was needed to care for Sean, uh, the, the disease didn't break out until Sean was dead and he wasn't needed anymore as the nurturing person, as someone who gives strength to others, only then the disease break out. It's uh, in, on a narrative level, it's this send-off this, that the character gets because then we see his funeral and we we actually hear a bit more about the background of the character at the funeral when we see we are the speak of him when again his wealth is being talked about and uh, we see it, it, we basically get a send off for david uh, and uh, it's almost feels like the film is a bit wrapping up by that point and it almost also feels almost a bit like the film has lost its emotional center with uh, this character gone and uh, this actor gone from it who Really, even even in the scenes that weren't about him, uh, had this had had this warmth to him. Yeah, uh, that, that that made you feel safe as you watched him, and you could understand that it also made others feel safe who were around him. Yeah, yeah, and the eulogy that Willie gives is it's it's a really lovely uh, mo- like monologue that doesn't feel at all grand, doesn't feel at all like like it's lionizing him. Uh, or making him out to be, you know, th- this grand is is ju- it's just David, it's just David, and and it really like, you know, puts into perspective the the character and and that, you know, it he it was just he's just one guy, but you know one one guy that 
you know, touch the lives of all these people around him, just like everyone else, just like all these other characters and all these other, you know, people that were lost uh, during the crisis. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it 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 speaks volumes. It it it's a scene that says a whole lot more than what it's actually saying. Uh, and the the David character because of Davison's performance, because of everything that he's given to him in not all that much of the... Like, I mean, he's in a lot of the movie. He's in a lot of scenes, but, like, it's a short movie, and it's a, a short up to that point as well. Like, not he he hasn't done anything grand, but he doesn't have to have. And that's... You know, it, it's it's... The movie's saying a whole lot by not saying very much with that, and the fact that Davison has left such an impact without doing very much, without needing to do very much, uh, really, really speaks to the performance and speaks to, I don't know, speaks to how the performance speaks. Yeah. And I mean, we're almost making, we're maybe making it sound like it's more depressing than it actually is. Yeah. And this it is a movie also that- has its, it, it it has this movie has funny moments and the yeah. performance has funny moments. There's there's one scene. Uh, uh, it's it's the scene before uh, he is uh, he is holding his partner's hands as he die as he is dying. Uh, in that scene, his partner Sean is a TV writer. He's writing for a TV soap opera, and uh, the year before he's dead, he is he's dying. In the scene before he's dying, he is already struggling with uh, dementia, which was which comes from uh, his disease, and he is on the you see on the one hand that David is basically doing Sean's job. He's basically working on the scripts that uh, David is supposed to be working on. And when uh, someone from the studio where Sean is working is calling, David is guiding Sean through the phone conversation by trying to tell him what to say and uh, some, and Sean doesn't always say what he's supposed to say, sometimes saying the wrong thing. And you see David half laughing about the fact how bad this conversation goes and half distressed about it. And it's it's walking such a fine line of uh, being devastating to see Sean deteriorate this way, but also seeing the comedy in the situation, the fact that, and also the fact that David, who is living with this, who, who for who this is the, the new normal, uh, which we know from the way he is talking to someone else about blood cell counts and how this affects that and how this treatment can have this result. Uh, he, th- th- this is his life now, and he still he still sees the absurd comedy in a phone conversation that goes wrong because Sean just didn't know what thing to say, even if he's getting a piece of paper on which uh, the line he's supposed to say is standing on. And even that that other phone conversation in that same scene where he's talking to Willie about, uh, or he's talking to Willie about something else, but then at the same time, Sean is taking his medication and he's just like, oh, well, he's, he's you know, getting light with, with a very a real potential consequence of all of that where he's like oh you know we just have to get him off of this medication so that his uh blood blood like red blood cell count goes up to this because he needs to 
have that so he can take this other medication. But if he goes off this medication, he might have another seizure. But if he starts taking this med- medication, he might go blind. So, you know, it's sort of a loose. And he's like saying it so nonchalantly, just like, well, that's the facts of things. Uh, uh, but, you know, still keeping that sort of upbeat charm as, as a sort of like, there's nothing we can do about it. These are the uh, the reality of the situation. Uh, and, you know, even through all that, he, he still keeps that resolve. And it's, a, it's, it's just a really, really solid, understated performance that does a whole lot with very little. Not to say that he has very little to do, but he does very much with every little moment. Yeah. And without drawing attention to himself by taking away from uh, the other actors. It's not like uh, this is a diva performance that is, uh, other than the one scene, which is all about him uh, holding the hand, uh, other than that one scene, you you don't get the impression that he is really uh, hogging the spotlight from anyone. It is an ensemble film. He is, as an actor, he is lucky enough to get the big acting, the biggest acting moment of the film. Uh, and he takes the chance, possibly because he's guided very well by his director, who knows exactly what kind of film he's making, what kind of performance is apt for this particular scene. Uh, but it's not like uh, he is stepping on anyone's toes through the rest of the film, because uh, he can comfortably fit into the ensemble in all other scenes, beginning with the first scene, which basically begins by all the characters reading out to each other the New York Times article uh, that talks about this new form of gay cancer that has been discovered. The first scene is the only one which doesn't have a date where it says when it is, but due to featuring this article, we can pinpoint the day that this scene is supposed to play as well. Yeah. Yeah, and it it's a uh, is is uh, since we're you know sort of talking about that part in general, is there anything else we want to say about Davison specifically, or do we want to move on and talk about the rest of the movie? Uh, I think we we haven't started repeating our praise about Davison, but I think we have pretty much uh, made clear that we both are very fond of the performance and why we're fond of it, and uh, I think there are other things in this film we could also talk about. Yeah, yeah, love Bruce Davison in general as a character actor. Always happy to see him pop up in things, and uh, great to see him get like a real showcase role like this that isn't too flashy, but is is you know it's a very good performance. If it wasn't clear enough uh, from all of our praise so far, but yeah, let's uh, let's move on and talk about some of the rest of this movie. Yes, yes, no. yes, he does. No, 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 no. Oh my no, god! No, 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 I think no, no, no. Don't you think that's brilliant? No. I do. Well, that's why it's so popular. Reagan? No, E.T. Well, it could be. No, why everybody loves Reagan. He looks like E.T. You've spoiled everything. Who? Listen to this. E.T. spoiled everything? This is a great political analysis. Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan spoiled E.T. Look at this. This is unreal. And that's why we love him so. We think he's an alien. No. Uh. Oh, does that mean you can't go see him now for the 55th time? Is there anyone else in this cast you want to start off highlighting or anything else in general you want to start off highlighting? I mean, maybe uh, we should, before we get into the details, we should talk about the structure of the film because I think the ingenious way in what makes this film stand out in particular is the way it 
shows what the AIDS crisis does, how it packs this into less than 100 minutes, because the film basically consists of nine scenes. I think it's nine. Uh, and every single scene is one day in one year. We get one day in 81, one in 82, one in 83, all up to one day in the year in 1989, um, uh, in, which, in which we always see the same group of people, mostly gay, mostly affluent uh, professionals uh, who are work who are seeing their life impeded by the AIDS crisis. And in the first scene, we, which is the day that the New York Times article is released, we see them, we see what is taken away from them. We see uh, we see them happy, living their happy life in kind of a secluded society where them being gay does not pose a problem. Uh, we don't see any hints of homophobia in the first scene that they're doing because they are in this sort of sort of a secluded group. Um, and then we see how disease affects them, how it affects them before any before they even have it themselves, when it's only a general threat, how it affects them when a friend has it, when a loved one has it, when they themselves have it. And through this structure that we only see one day at the time, we never see one long suffering of the same character. Except maybe the case of Sean, who we see at different stages of his disease. Yeah. But other than that, we don't we don't see any repetitions we don't see uh, the, the the does not indulge in showing someone suffering this uh, through the structure we see different sides we see them at different times in the AIDS epidemic we see them at diff also different times when more and more of the disease is understood and when yeah. there's more of a chance to understand it because basically there's an early scene when they already know it's a virus but they're still uh Talks like, oh, maybe you only get it if you have a certain lifestyle that only those who use drugs are getting it. So basically, it's still unknown. And it, and the, 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 more, the more the film goes on, the, the more these characters know what they are dealing with. And, and it's, it's this structure, which is not trying to tell one continuous story, but basically picks points in time and sees how it affects this group of people. And also how we see these people, how, how we lose people. I mean, we've seen the first scene what's taken away from them. And the first scene also, we see we also see their virility because uh, they're shirtless half the time. These are very healthy uh, people. They're very, very careless people. Uh, and as I said, at the end of the film, only three of them survive and only two of the gay characters survive this film. Uh, so this, this really gives you an idea how horrible the impact of the AIDS epidemic was without indulging in the suffering and with, without making anything that you would call misery porn because it really highlights the strength of the, of these of the people afflicted with it, the strength of the character it highlights the humanity of the character and and that is why this film has so much power and why I find this film so moving yeah, especially for a movie coming out in 1989, 1990. Like, for a movie that, that is basically running you right up to the current day, 
and is you know not really pulling any punch. Oh, I don't. It is worth noting uh, that there, uh, out of the entire cast of not just the main ten, but like of everyone that has speaking lines, uh, there are three characters that aren't white and one character who's not cisgender, and two of those three non-white characters are basically just like service roles. One of them is uh, the the like the the person that's helping David out take care of Sean. And another one is a person that works at the gym with Willie who says, Hey, you have a call. Uh like that it, it's it's a it's a it's a limited uh like perspective. Uh but yeah, e- even even still for its time, for for what it is saying, for how it's not really, you know, sanitizing anything. This is not a movie made for straight audiences. This is not a movie that is like, well, here we're gonna teach straight people about how bad AIDS was or is is because you know, like I said, it's it's still going on when the when the movie is being made when it's coming out. Um, it was it was still a death sentence basically yes. at that time when you when the film came out. And I I mean. Uh, I imagine even without this being the case, it would still be just as hard hitting about all these things. But it is worth noting that the director uh, found out that he was HIV positive like days before production started and ended up uh, he he died in 1995. Uh, There was at least one other actor. I think the actor who plays the, the patient that Willie is volunteering with in the last scene died like three days after the premiere because uh, he he also uh was positive uh yeah it, it it's it's a movie that is you know made by the people that the movie is about and it you really feel that you really feel that in a way that if this was if the, if this movie was made by straight people it would be so especially made by straight people in 1989 it would not be anywhere near the the thing that it is and uh you really feel that in, in not just in in you know message but in just the way the characters interact the way the characters behave the way the characters have their different perspectives on different like minutia of the queer experience uh is is it it doesn't even from today's perspective it doesn't feel like that much of a time capsule in that perspective these feel like characters that you could see in something set today and and also they, also uh, these characters are gay but these are not portrayed as gay stereotypes there are no limp-wristed drama queens hosting around they are regular people as they're a lawyer and a writer, and uh, while they are a certain segment, this is not the kind of gay stereotype that was especially abundant in 1980s cinema. Yeah. Uh, so th- there are no gay affectations uh, y- you would expect. So, uh, and I don't know in a way. Are are I don't know if any of the cast or any of the main cast are gay. Uh, do do you happen to know if if, if uh, I 
I can't tell you from the top of my head. I, I know Bruce Davis isn't gay, so uh, yeah. But it, well, but I mean, even yeah, the, even like then, the, this. Yeah, it, 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 it's straight actors. They're not putting on affectations. They're they're not falling into that stereotype. They're not doing a voice or doing a, a. They're not carrying themselves in a way that you would see from a lot of straight actors playing gay characters around this time, uh, which just you know piggybacking off what you were saying it's refreshing to see a, a real realistic portrayal that that doesn't fall into the uh the obvious choices that a lot of actors at the time maybe would have fallen for yeah um oh is, is there anyone else in the cast you do want to talk about uh their performances necessarily uh um, while Bruce Davison is the standard of the cast, I must say I'm personally very partial to Stephen Caffrey, who plays Scruffy. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure if part of this is because as a man, he is what I would say is my type. Uh, but yeah. also it's I, I like he he is he is such a pleasant and upbeat character. He is uh he, he is optimistic even everyone else is down until he isn't optimistic anymore himself which is by the 1985 scene um there's one scene where he's lip-syncing to dream girls yeah and it's and and right to camera too yeah r right towards the camera uh until his partner comes home he's slightly embarrassed about it but but this scene alone of of uh, Scruffy lip-syncing to the theme from Dreamgirls. It's it's just such a wonderful little scene in this movie that uh, it's... Uh, and I know I just said there are no gay affectations in this film, and now I say one character is lip-syncing to Dreamgirls, but <laughs> it's... Uh... It, it, it's it, it feels real. It, it feels yeah. like... You know, it, it's just because it's this, not... this is a character enjoying himself when this song is, Absolutely. When this song is playing. Absolutely. Like there, there's a lot of little moments like that that I think benefit from having a, a queer director uh, to you know guide the performances of, I imagine, probably mostly or entirely straight cast of like, hey, you know, here's a, a I don't know, here's how a gay person would behave or would deliver this line or would act in this scene without, you know, falling on. I don't even know what like would have been the the like uh, uh base point that an actor would have pulled from in 1989 of like what other gay stereotypes they would be trying to emulate from having seen but uh it, it William Hurt yes William Hurt who, who gets name dropped in the movie name dropped who uh, gets name dropped anachronistically I would I should say because they oh, are right. referencing his performance in uh Kiss of the Spider Woman in I believe the 1982 scene, so at least three years too early. Yeah, yeah, that's totally right. I didn't even note that, uh, but yeah, I, I I don't think there would have been another one they would have been talking about then. Yeah, I, uh, I mean they don't they don't say Kiss of the Spider Woman. The quote I wrote it down. It's all right for Bill Hurt to play a fag, and I don't think he he played a notable gay character before Kiss of the Spider Woman, and that's I, the 1982 scene. Yeah, I can't even think of another William Hurt movie from before 1982 well Body i Heat. guess yes Body yeah is from 81 and uh and he's definitely is, not is, playing a yes. gay character in is, is altered states also before then is he in altered I states I, 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 that's i'm, I'm quite certain altered states it's 
before nineteen before nineteen eighty three, but I'm not entirely sure if he's in it. Two, yep. Uh, uh, he's uh, uh, apparently first build. So uh, good on me for pulling that uh, for a movie I haven't seen. Uh, uh, how did we get on William Hurt? Oh, right. Um, yeah. No, there, there's gay act- yes. actors playing gay. There's there's lots of little moments of of levity and joy that I I I really like that help the movie not feel so morose not that like i i'm going to this movie about the aids crisis saying like hey make me feel good but like there, there's moments of levity that you know help tell a balanced uh, uh story and a balanced uh just experience there's the the point where uh paul is someone no uh paul is the partner howard is the actor uh where paul comes home after howard has had the audition and is like oh hey how'd it go and howard just like Oh, you know, it went fine. I got it. And they have this sort of back and forth. Of like, you kidding? You 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 fucking with me? No, yeah, I, I got the part. Two years, and then they just sort of look at each other, and then they both like jump up and start hugging, and it's very sweet. Uh, it's it's uh, just little little bits like that that make these not just the characters feel lived in, but the relationships feel very lived in. They all feel very much like like they're playing these long-standing couples or these new couples in the case of uh willie and fuzzy uh as that couple like gets to, oh it, is, is it that might be like a translation thing it's fuzzy in the version isn't, isn't i have cr- is it is there yeah everything that i'm uh on the wikipedia says fuzzy in the movie all, all my notes say fuzzy it, I have no. Maybe I don't know why I wrote down Scruffy. It could be like a Scruffy is the janitor in Futurama. Maybe it's just. It could be. Could be. <laughs> Got him on your mind. Um, yeah. But like as that relationship. Yeah. It 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 it's fuzzy. I said Scruffy before. I mean, they're synonyms. They they mean the same thing, more or yeah. less. He's. And, I mean, fuzzy is a nickname because he has a lot of hair. So he's yeah. know, scruffy. That scruffy would also be an apt nickname for the yeah, same maybe, reasons. Yeah. Maybe that's just I heard what I wanted to hear. I, I, I heard what possible. I saw. Yeah, very true. And that beard looks good on him too. Uh, but yeah, like I mean, their relationship as it sort of ebbs and flows over the years, as they, you know, they they we see them meeting, we see them getting together, and they're, as far as I can tell, still together by the end of the movie. Uh, yeah. Or if not, they're still on very close terms. Uh, I mean, they, they, they are the they are the two character, the two gay characters who survive the film. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, the the final scene, uh, the, the conversation the three remaining characters have is probably the closest thing the film has to a cliched monologue of how important this is when they say it's inconceivable that it were times uh, before all this, but it leads into a fantasy ending scene which feels earned uh, because yes. if if you remember that this film was still made when uh th- when at a point in time when it, an AIDS diagnosis meant that he would probably die within a few years uh, so th- there's really no way to make an ending to this movie and there's no, there's no way to end this movie full stop because it's in the middle of the AIDS crisis still so t- 
trying to 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 go for fantasy ending and bringing back all the characters that we've lost for at least one brief moment uh, is possibly the only way to really give this film an ending that even feels some kind of uplifting. Yeah, and uh, and you get the shot that's on the poster of uh, uh, Willie hugging John, uh, Dermot Mulroney, uh, which Dermot Mulroney is not in this movie very much because he dies in he's the second scene. He's a lot more scene. on the poster than he's in the film. Yes, um, uh, he's very good. I, I, I thought he was very charming. Uh, and also, I he looks so much like Benny Safdie and i yes! couldn't yes. not it was like it feels like benny safty like went back in time and is just in this movie it is it is unsettling how cuz like i i if i am looking at Dermot Mulroney now i wouldn't re- really note a resemblance but here looks exactly like it very very strange if 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 you just see the, the I mean I mean he 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 is the big face on the poster even though he's barely in the film, uh, it, it's still uh, kind of Benny Safdie-ish how he looks. Yeah, uh, just a little bit. Um, anyone else in this guy? Uh, Campbell Scott is really good. I I really liked him. He's like probably as close as you get to a main character. Uh, in this, you, you see his perspective. He I think he has the most yeah. like individual perspective scenes over the course of it all uh and he basically takes the scepter of being the emotional center after davison has gone from the film yeah because uh, uh he is uh he's playing an actor uh, and and then he has um or no and no no sorry no he's, he's the, um, willie he's willie yeah he's a Personal trainer, I think, is his. He's job. a personal trainer. Yes, right. I, I was th- yeah. I was thinking of Howard at the moment. Uh, uh, Patrick Cassidy played Howard. Pa- Who's also Cassidy good. Is... Yeah, I mean, everyone in this cast is good. The, yeah. There's not a there's not a you know sour note of the of the yeah, main no. ten. Uh, pa- Patrick Cassidy plays Howard, the actor, and he also has the scene after David is dead, who is basically working for AIDS awareness uh, after his own diagnosis. Um, it's also an interesting scene. Uh, as, as I said, there, there's this is not a film which tries to hammer its points home by playing sad music, because yeah. after, after, after we hear the speech that Howard is giving, we hear a stripped-down version of YMCA played by a string quartet or a string trio, and it's so wonderful and so much more appropriate and so much better than any kind of sad music would have been and we just see the audience laughing as this very clash kind of performance of this uh, very silly song played in such such an inappropriate way yeah uh, it's being played the bit where the um the the cellist does the like sort of scratch for the ba 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 that like where it's just her scratching on that like high note it's very it's a it's a really good moment of you know following up uh well i guess you have other moments of levity following up the funeral where you have the the story about david putting on his sister's wedding dress and 
tripping backwards down the stairs and having to get cut out of the dress by the paramedics. But it's a good moment where, like, it's the movie telling the audience and it's also the the performers there telling the characters that, like, it's okay to laugh. Because it, it sort of takes a while for the characters to be like, oh, this is supposed to be funny. This isn't, like, they're trying to do something emotional and it's not going over well. Like, this is intended as a comedy bit for this you know charity performance or whatever they're doing of, of you know living with aids uh and it's 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 a really nice moment on that level as well because it, it is giving you permission kind of to like you know still live a life with joy and live a life with pleasure and stupidity and and like you know, whatever life you want to live. And and it, yeah. it it's a nice little moment there. On and top of being like very it, funny. It's scenes like this that make this a movie about resilience and defiance rather than a movie about suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what else in my notes uh, do I want to mention? I don't really have much to say about Mary Louise Parker, who's fine, but is more of like a, a a way to connect some of these characters than an actual character herself, which makes sense. She's very much on the sidelines uh, by, by nature of the character, but she's fine. I mean, the film is not about her. She's, yes. She's also so there. She, even although she's one of the, the third of the three surviving main characters, she doesn't really have any scenes where she's at the center. Yeah. Um I don't have really any other notes uh uh or things I wanted to mention. Did you have anything else uh to say about the movie in general? I think um Yes, I th- I think I I'm just looking through my notes. And I, I I really wrote scruffy everywhere. I wrote I, I didn't write fuzzy a single time. I don't know how scruffy got into my head. I mean, once you get it in mind, it's uh it's in there. You got incepted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, the, the one thing I wrote about the director Norman Rene is uh, you mentioned that he, uh, you said he was diagnosed with AIDS shortly before filming it. I read somebody was diagnosed with it in 1987. However, the one thing I read that he was uh hiding the disease himself yes. from everyone else from almost everyone else involved in making the film uh as he was making it i think maybe it was shortly before production started so i guess maybe it was a prolonged production before filming actually started it could be. Uh, that would that would make more sense from what i had read i guess uh uh but yeah uh do we want to move on and talk about some oscar stuff let's talk about some oscar stuff yes Bruce Davison in Longtime Companion. Andy Garcia in The Godfather Part 3. Graham Greene in Dances with Wolves. Al Pacino in Dick Tracy. And Joe Pesci in Goodfellas. Okay, so uh, you mentioned up top that like Bruce Davison is kind of the the magnet for 
appreciation for this movie. And that holds true with a lot of these precursors. Uh, like I said, it played Sundance, where it was up for the dramatic grand jury, uh, the winner there being Chameleon Street, and it won the Audience Award uh, for Dramatic Filmmaking. The Golden Globes, Bruce Davison wins Best Supporting Actor. Uh, the other nominees there, uh, Oscar nominees, Joe Pesci, Al Pacino, and Andy Garcia, and then Hector Elizondo for Pretty Woman and Armando Sante for Q&A. Uh, so a lot of uh, uh, gangsters and uh, I wonder if, I mean, it didn't end up splitting the vote at the Oscars, but I wonder if those, and I haven't seen Q&A, so I don't know the nature of Armando Sante's uh, uh, character there, but it seems like a crime sort of something, right? I don't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy or what, but uh, that may have... I, I have seen it, but I must have been was a while ago. I, I don't really remember the film itself. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that Albert Finney isn't here for Miller's Crossing, who would be another gangster another, type performance. Yeah. And he's he's so much fun in Miller's Crossing, and uh, he would have been a great nomination, both for the Golden Globes and the Oscars and anything else. I mean, my Oscar, my supporting act, my personal supporting actor lineup for this year, I think has three Miller's Crossing performances in it. Just because, like, how do you go for, you know, Finney, but not Turturro and Polito as well? Like, you, they're all so, that movie is so good. And those three performances are, like, some of the best that the Coens have ever brought out. And that's really saying something. But, uh. Yeah. Love me some Miller's Crossing. What a shame that it happened to be in a really uh, organized crime heavy movie yeah. year that uh, it, it sort of gets swept under the rug. Uh, but uh, speaking of John Turturro, uh, New York film critics Bruce Davison wins uh, supporting actor, also placing Joe Pesci and John Turturro. And National Society of Film Critics Davison wins uh runner-up Pesci and then tied for third place Al Pacino and John Turturro. Uh the Indie Spirits, Bruce Davison wins again, uh beating out a whole bunch of people, including uh, my beloved Willem Dafoe and Wild at Heart, which is a performance that also would probably make my lineup. And at that point that's four out of five and then someone's gotta get cut. Uh I don't know. Maybe I can just have six like the Golden Globes did. Uh, what did I say? Uh, Los Angeles film critics Bruce Davison is the runner-up to Joe Pesci. The Glad Media Awards it wins uh, outstanding film in a tie with The Handmaid's Tale, the Natasha Richardson version. Volker Schlundorf. Volker Schlundorf directed one, is it? I don't know who directed it, but I will take your word for it. I, I believe it's one of Volker Schlundorf's Hollywood movies. Um... I really don't know much about that version in general. I wouldn't have even been able to say it was Natasha Richardson if I hadn't checked that on the IMDb page like an hour ago. Uh, yes, directed direct by Volker Schlundorf and screenplay by Harold Pinter. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, the Casting Society, this movie is uh, nominated for Outstanding Casting for a feature film drama, uh, which it, uh, competes in 1989, so it loses to Dead Poets Society. And the Political Film Society, this is nominated in the category of Human Rights, which doesn't appear to have a winner, according to the IMDb page. The other categories had a listed winner, and this category had like six nominees, uh, including movies like uh, Glory, I think, was in there, and Driving Miss Daisy, maybe. And then also Quigley Down Under, which I haven't <laughs> seen, but seems out of place. Right? Why not? <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't know. Human rights for Quigley Down Under. Good for you. Uh, Australians need human rights too. Yes. And so does Tom Selleck is the lead in that movie, right? Sounds correct. It's either him or Burt Reynolds. I can't place which one it is. Uh, mustache down. Yeah, it's a mustached man. Um, yes, Tom Selleck, Alan Rickman, Laura San Giacomo. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess. Good for you, Quigley Down Under. Um, uh, but yeah, that, that's really uh, all that there is as far as precursor things or just things that show up on the IMDb Awards tab. Uh, obviously, almost all of those are Bruce Davison uh, nominations or wins. A uh, bit of a critics darling winning two of the big critics groups and placing at Los Angeles. So uh, I imagine he maybe came close. I not came close to winning, but like would have been runner up to Pesci, maybe? I mean I mean he won he even won the Golden Globe. That's a surprise. That's the one. one that's the one that really uh, so, I mean, like I I believe it must have been a two horse race between the two of them because uh, Joe Pesci was the other big play in that category. And it's it's probably if we're looking back at the race now, it it looks like Joe Pesci is such an obvious winner that we would like to think or we'd probably think of him as someone who won the category without any real competition but i actually believe just just the way just how many prizes davison racked up that year it, it must have been a tools race I, I, I wouldn't go as far as say that it was an upset that pashi won over him but I think uh, Bruce Davison probably had a speech prepared and uh, probably thought he had a good shot at this. Yeah, I wouldn't blame him uh, for thinking that because, yeah, the Golden Globe win especially really feels like it's not just a, a critic's thing that was never actually going to translate. That that feels like, because when you look at the other outlier Golden Globe wins around this time, it's stuff like Brad Pitt or like other, you know, like movie star wins. And Bruce Day, like character actor Bruce Davison, who at this point is best known for, I guess, Willard would have been what would have been like his. his Probably, fame. yeah. Like, that's not someone that they're like, oh, we got to give an, an award to, you know, A lister movie star Bruce Davison. Like, at, at that point, it's really like they responded to, I mean, they responded to the performance. Uh, it didn't even get other, another nomination at the Globes. It's just that one. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's there's and it. This was another question that I had uh, that I didn't think that hard about because I I thought of it like right before we started recording. Um, because this is a case where like it feels like the momentum for Davison in particular. Uh, is kind of a way to reward the cast as a whole. Like they're picking out the one from an ensemble. How often do you get like a big, like like a true sprawling ensemble like this that ends up with more than one acting nomination? Because like the, the one... Park. Yeah, Gosford Park. Nashville? Yeah, the two Altmans. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Other than that, like LA Confidential just gets the Kim Basinger nomination. Magnolia just gets the tom cruise nomination uh i keep for, i always keep forgetting that julian moore wasn't even nominated for magnolia it's weird it, it's it's so it's so weird like i always want 
and I've never seen the end of the affair, so I can't speak to that performance. Yeah. But like when I'm filling in, oh yeah, the 1999 nomination for Julianne Moore, Magnolia. Nope. Um, I but can't... she got it. She got in for Boogie Nights, and so did Bud yes. Reynolds. Yes, but that one, as much of an ensemble as that is, that one has like a protagonist. You have Dirk Diggler in there as that's true, the protag- protagonist of that movie with a big ensemble around him. But like a true ensemble, you don't get a lot of like. I mean, Babel also has two. Um, so I'm I'm disproving my little theory here yeah. uh, as as I'm thinking about it more. But, but you have Parasite Parasite with zero. Yes. You yeah, there's uh, th- they're weird I th- about ensembles. I, I think maybe the problem is, I mean, if I think of uh, Parasite, for example, it's also maybe the problem is if there's no clear standout, if everyone is good and no one has the one scene that outshines everyone else or overshadows everyone else, it's a bit hard to find a consensus who it should be, uh, and. As much as I could say you could basically fill up the entire supporting actress lineup with women from Parasite, um, as long as there's no clear consensus who to vote in the nominating process, uh, it could basically happen that uh, everyone just is somewhere in the sixth, seventh, eighth spot, but just no one has got enough support to just pull a hat into the top five. Yeah, yeah. I'm just now. I'm just looking at the uh, the SAG ensemble. Just like the history of of the nominees there to see if anything else uh, pops out to me. Um, Traffic is another one that you know had buzz around other performances, but only ends up with the Del Toro nomination. Um, almost famous, not really, because you do have a lead there. Gosford Park, like you mentioned, that one definitely uh, pokes a little hole into my little pet theory here. Um. Crash, big ensemble, just gets the Matt Dillon nomination. Uh, Little Miss Sunshine, that's another one that uh, does end up with two. Uh, but The Departed, also, only one acting nomination with that huge ensemble. And the wrong one. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, uh, no Country for Old Men, even, kind of fits into this, where like, yeah, there's not really a protagonist there. Uh, but and and it kind of feels like Tommy Lee Jones got the nomination for it as well, even though it was yeah. another movie. Yeah, Inglorious Bastards also feels like it fits that. I'm not going to go through all of these, but uh, yeah, it, it's a thing where where like they'll have one actor represent an entire ensemble, and it feels like maybe that also helped propel Davison uh, uh, towards not just you know staying in the conversation but like getting all those wins is it's like well we don't have an ensemble prize and we're not gonna in order to be able to properly recognize the 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 movie in general and the full ensemble of it we're really gonna rally behind one performance and davison ends up being the one and i feel uh, rightly so he's the, the best of the ensemble in general but uh it's just an interesting little thing that'll happen sometimes yeah, it's also. I I wonder also if just thinking of the chair of the let's say the two horseways between Davison and Pesci is, uh, I think the disadvantage of Davison was that probably a lot more of the voters have seen Goodfellas than uh, Long Time Companion oh, because 
Certainly. I would expect almost everyone has seen Goodfellas. Um, on the other hand, maybe Longtime Companion was a bit more of a passion pick. Uh, also, clearly a progressive choice back in 1990. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I mean, Joe Pesci is Joe Pesci. I mean, I, I love Longtime Companion. I really love Bruce Davidson's performance, but not even I am certain, not even I would say I would vote for Davidson over Joe Pesci because Joe Pesci is so damn good in Goodfellas. He he's really such, is. such a scene steal. He's such a firecracker. He's, he's so unpredictable. You, you, you always, you, you just always, uh, don't know what to expect from him next. He's so good. It, maybe it's just unfortunate that Davison was in the same year as this powerhouse of a performance. And also by an actor like Joe Pesci, who probably had a bit of an overdue factor, at least going back to Raging Bull, where he was already great as well. So uh, in in other circumstances, if, if, if Pesci wasn't here and Anyone else was up that yeah, I think Davison would quite would probably have won because there were wasn't probably not really a clear alternative. Uh, but with Joe Pesci, such a powerhouse, it was just bad luck to be in the same year as him. Yeah, uh, I wonder if this had got held for another year, he probably would have beat Jack Palance, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean. Yeah, I, mean, I don't mind Jack Palance's win. I've never seen it. F- I I am saving it for when I end up doing that episode. But uh, and we got a famous Oscars moment from it. So we sure we, uh, we certainly did. Um, something else but, I wanted to mention just now, but uh, keep talking; it'll come to me. Uh, but I I think uh, it, it, I think he would have beaten Joe. Uh, he would have beaten Jack Palance, which uh, it's. It's a fun win, but not really one the we needed to have. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, oh, uh, just looking at the Wikipedia page here. Apparently, this movie uh, played the Cannes Film Festival, and IMDb just didn't tell me. Uh, it screened <laughs> Uncertain Regard, uh, which what else would have been in that? Uh, now Wikipedia is also being weird about not showing me okay here we go um oh i don't know if i recognize any of these other titles anyway that played in certain regard at this can uh but i've talked about this can before because this is the one where wild at heart wins the palm uh which is also a a cool pick i love that that one is one of the one of my favorite weird little palm winners is out of all of david lynch's filmography that's his palm door is wild at heart well, I'm not the world's greatest David Lynch fan, so I don't really agree with you there. But um, I there, yeah. I, I'm just I don't recognize any of these uncertain regard titles either. But as that, one that makes me record, feel a lot better because I I'm like oh well I uh, maybe these are foreign movies that I'm just out of the loop on, but uh. Makes me feel better I, to hear that you also don't recognize them. I, I don't recognize most of the directors. I see that one of them was uh, uh, directed by Monica Vidi. Oh, huh. Also known as Peppa Pig. <laughs> I I cannot I I can no longer see the name uh, Monica Vidi without having the 
great urge to say Peppa Pig. It's <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, love that. Um, I had something else that I wanted to say earlier, uh, or that I thought of and then forgot. Give me a second, because it's like on the tip of my tongue. Um, God. It's really just not anywhere in my notes. There was some there was something that I had that I I wanted to mention. And now I just don't have it. Oh well. If I think of it later, I'll say it. I'll cut around all this. Uh uh. Um, maybe one maybe one other thing since you mentioned things that were on Wikipedia and aren't on the IMDB. According to Wikipedia, there was a winner for human rights in oh. the political film society in nineteen ninety. And it was driving Miss Daisy. Of course it was. Of yeah. course it was. Uh, yeah, Quigley Down Under sure is on there. Uh, I don't know why that is. Um, but uh, yeah, good good for you, I suppose. Um, uh, oh yeah, so let's talk about this uh, supporting actor lineup. I watched Dick Tracy for the first time for this, uh, which... What a movie. What an interesting movie that is. I I haven't seen it in a few months. Um it certainly is an interesting movie. Eliminating Al, Al Pacino of all people in it is probably very much a case of, oh, look, Al Pacino, he doesn't have an Oscar. It's about time. And we haven't uh, nominated him in eleven years. Yeah. Although, in fairness, he barely made any movies in the 80s yeah he made scarface but other than scarface he made uh this very awful film in which nastasia kinski has a ship on her head a revolution i believe it's called Take um, a word for it but other than that uh el pacino barely made any movies in the 80s it was mainly working on the stage so the academy didn't have that many chances to give him oscar nominations yeah uh he's fun in it it's a he's having a good time. It's it certainly feels like a precursor to all of the rest of Al Pacino's career after Dick Tracy. Uh not saying that is a bad thing, but it definitely is like, oh, he locked into something here and kind of kept on that mode for most everything else after that. And it works. It's fun. He's having a good time. Uh I don't He sure has. Yeah. Uh, I don't have that much more to say about the performance because it's not necessarily the most nuanced or a, a, a you know, it's not a performance you can really dig deep on. It's just a fun, fun, good time supporting a, a big, big role. I mean, it, it's a fun comic book movie. Exactly. Yeah. And it's a fun comic book performance. Yes, very much so. Uh, you, you love to see it. Good for you, Al Pacino. Um, so when I did Wild at Heart, I told myself, oh, I'm, I'll am i watch Dances with Wolves next time. Uh, I don't have time for it. Uh, and then when I did The Field, I was like, oh, I'll watch Dances with Wolves next time. Audience, listeners, I did not watch Dances with Wolves this time. I think I probably just don't want to watch Dances with Wolves, I think is what I've realized. As I'll watch I... it eventually, but like, eh. I can't blame you because... Dances with Wolves is uh, a Dances with Wolves is a movie that makes three hours feel like five. Um, 
I don't really like it. I haven't seen it in a while as well. I certainly had no urge to rewatch it for this. What I can say for memory, Chief Dan George is probably the best thing about the entire film. So, Graham uh, Green. Chief Dan George is the big man. The the other the other native, uh, supporting actor nominee. This is so embarrassing. Sorry. Yeah. Um. Graham Greene still is the best thing about. <laughs> Sorry, Graham Greene right. is the best thing about this. About it's probably the best thing about the entire film. I don't mind the nomination at all, but there's no way I'm gonna rewatch Dances with Wolves anytime soon. It's just. It's so much longer than three hours. Yeah. Yeah. Dick Tracy at that cool, uh, what, hour 45, hour 50 something? That was an easy like, oh, I'll watch Dick Tracy for this. Hell yeah. Yeah. Dick Tracy seems like a fun time to put on and uh, maybe not pay the most attention, but like check in when I can and uh, enjoy it. And I don't think I would have had the same experience with Dances with Wolves. Uh, or you would not with the Godfather Part Three, which I also have not seen and uh, uh, decided not to, and feel pretty good about that decision. I mean, there's no reason to watch only the Godfather Part Three. It you should it's it's okay to watch it as a coda to the first two Godfathers, even although compared to them, it's a bit of a letdown. Um, I understand why Andy Garcia got nominated for it because. He's good in it. It's not some. It's not a nomination I would have handed out. Um, and also, it's obviously unfair to compare the Godfather Part Three to the first two Godfathers because the first two Godfathers are among the greatest movies ever made, and no film would compare very well to them. Um, so. Yeah, Garcia is good in the film. I don't mind the nomination. I would I wouldn't have given it to him. However, yeah, I mean it, it's nice to have an Oscar nominee Andy Garcia. Uh, so you know I'm not going to take that. Not having seen the performance, I'm not going to take that away just for the fact that it's in a movie that doesn't have a great reputation. Uh, silent I mean, scene. The thing about the Godfather Part Three is what, what I find interesting about the Godfather Part Three. Sofia Coppola is actually not very good in this. I have to agree yeah. with that, as, as hard as it is, as, as, as much as I want to say. But she got such a bad beating from everyone that I find it miraculous that she, less than a decade later, found the courage to start a career as a director because she was pummeled so badly by everyone uh, that... Uh, now following in the footsteps of a famous father and directing films was basically like painting a huge target on the back of her head. And if if she wouldn't have started her career as a director with uh, two films as great as The Virgin Suicides and Lost in Translation, she would probably have been pummeled very badly for them as well. So it, it yeah. was almost a brave act by her to actually go into direct to believe in herself and believe in her talent, which she obviously has. She's she's not an actress. At least she's not a good actress in this movie. I yeah. hate to admit this. But uh, she she is a very good director and I am happy that she uh, didn't let the comments, didn't let the fact that she would have had 
a harder time than most others convincing critics of her talent as a director uh, deter her from actually making movies. Yeah, uh, agreed with all of that, having not seen the performance, but uh, having heard from even people that are like, I, I don't know, I didn't have a, an answer to what people are like uh, in starting that sentence, but uh, yeah, seems like just not her thing, acting, and it uh, doesn't have to be. Uh, I have only ever heard of a single person who liked Sofia Coppola's performance in The Godfather Part 3, and that's Francis Ford Coppola in the commentary track to The Godfather Part 3. Uh, other than that, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say any positive thing about her. Yeah, and it's also not like he's going to go in there and be like, yeah, my daughter's a, a shitty actress. Get a, get a load of this. Um, but uh, yeah, no... Uh... That that tracks. That, that's fair. Um, is there anything else about these Oscars that we can sort of delve into? There aren't really. I mean, like I said, Davison is really the the magnet for all of those uh, uh, all of the attention on this movie. So it it's not really like there are other places to talk about it necessarily. But uh, I mean, it. it Considering that the, uh, you, you probably hit a certain ceiling of Oscar nominations you could give Longtime Companion, uh, yeah. which would mostly be above the line, because technically it has, I would say, the production value of a prestige TV drama. Uh, oh, oh that, so. that's, that reminded me of the thing I was going to say uh, uh, earlier. Uh, we got it. Okay. Um, this movie isn't streaming anywhere. Uh, the yeah, only version it of be. it is it it's on YouTube and a really low quality uh stream of it. This movie deserves like a criterion release. I and it it is kind of strange that it hasn't gotten one. It feels like the kind of movie that they would uh, it feels like a movie that would have gotten a restoration at some point. Like I think from what I saw the last release of this movie was a DVD release in 2001. Uh, and since then, there hasn't really been any move to restore it or put it out anywhere. And uh, that's a shame because it, it would be nice to, you know, see this movie in higher quality than like, what, 380p or whatever. Is, is that? And I think it and I, th I think it's also a film. It is really a great movie. And if it was available to a broader audience in good quality, I think I think it's a film that is ripe to be discovered or rediscovered and yeah i think it would it it has a good reputation judging by those who have seen it but it would have an even greater reputation if it was available in good quality if you could just stream it on the criterion channel or netflix or whatever if you just could sit down on your sofa and watch it anywhere because this is a film that should be seen it's a film that still packs a punch it's a film that still is very effective if you watch it today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, so to bring it back to what you were saying before I, I sidetracked us uh, with remembering that, yeah, it's not a movie that is necessarily uh, uh, flashy in its production. Uh, so I, it would really, I mean, I, if it were to get another nomination, it probably would be for its screenplay, uh, which what this is a weird original screenplay year right there's like a lot of uh 
Okay, so I haven't actually seen any of these movies other than Ghost, so I can't speak to anything beyond that. But, like, it feels like there's other movies that would... And maybe I'm just saying that because Pretty Woman didn't get nominated, and it feels like Pretty Woman would have been nominated. But uh, I don't know. How, how does this... Uh, how does the screenplay lineup stand out to you? Um, Alice is a mid-to-good Woody Allen movie. It's one of his last... I think it's one of his last movies with um, Mia Farrow. I think he only made two films with Mia Farrow after that. I remember that I like Avalon, but... Uh, didn't Avalon? I remember I've watched Avalon. I remember I've watched Metropolitan. I can't even say you for, tell you for certain if I like the movies or not. But <laughs> these are prestige movies that you have. Seen. I think I, I have seen. Um, Avalon stars Armin Müller Stahl, and he's very good in it. That's what I remember. That tracks I'm knowing not, him. I'm not really sure if I, I, I think I even think I would give uh, Armin Müller-Stahl an acting uh, best actor nomination for it, uh, partly because the best actor field of 1990 is, as far as I can tell, not the very very greatest. Um, um, and then Green Card is the other one. I don't really care for Green Card. Um, it's fine, I guess. Um, yeah, that, that tracked with what what I, I the general consensus seems to be from what I've heard. Uh, Jessup Machik, I gave Avalon three stars on Letterboxd, which makes sense for a film I barely remember. Yeah, <laughs> sure. I I gave Metropolitan three and a half stars on Letterboxd, which makes also for a sense I don't remember too much. Um, my letterbox review for Metropolitan is if you are into films about young, good-looking, and affluent white people talking about affluent white people stuff, this is the right film for you. Sounds sounds like it. Sounds like it. Um and yeah, it, my letterbox review for Avalon is a film reveling in memories. It has its duller moments though. Ami Mulashtal, however, is terrific. Yeah, I didn't have a lot of things to say about either of those two films, and that, they slipped yeah. from my mind uh, fairly well. So, uh, best original screenplay nomination with this competition, uh, I would easily give a longtime companion nomination and a win for the screenplay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, comparing it against the one I've seen in Ghost, I would absolutely put this above that. Um, it really feels like Ghost is just, like, sucking up all of the populist vote there because, like, you could have seen a world where any of Pretty Woman or, like, Edward Scissorhands or even yeah. Home Alone shows up there. Like, big Ed populist comedies that are funny or just well-written. I mean, Edward Scissorhands isn't, like, a laugh riot. And you know what? Like, this might be an unpopular opinion, but... Ghost doesn't have a good screenplay. Ghost, no. Ghost is not a good movie. Ghost has an amazing performance by Whoopi Goldberg, who carries this entire film and makes it watchable. Yes. If you take Whoopi Goldberg out of Ghost, you have a terrible movie. Yeah. Um, uh, and also, just because we're talking about Ghost, this gives me a very thin excuse to talk about my 
a wild movie watching experience last night uh, where uh, in order I started Dick Tracy got like 45 minutes in and then went to the uh, the theater where I volunteer uh, to watch Roadhouse and then I uh, came home from that finished Dick Tracy and then watched Longtime Companion uh, over the course of the night so that was that was my movie going experience a uh, uh, roadhouse sandwiched in between half of dick tracy uh i recommend it i recommend that that way of watching those two movies maybe not necessarily following it up with long time companion uh just because that's gonna be a real tonal shift but like roadhouse kicks ass roadhouse is a lot of fun uh which that uh, talking about it just because we're talking about patrick swayze in Maybe not great movies. <laughs> Roadhouse better than Ghost, I might say. If you other than Whoopi, like Whoopi Goldberg and Ghost, yeah. then Roadhouse, then the rest of Ghost. Well, Vincent Chiavelli in Ghost is also floating around there. Uh, yeah, floating around there because he's a ghost, but also floating around the top of the list because he's good in Ghost. Um, I would. I, th- I think I even would agree with you, even although. I, do, I have seen Roadhouse only one, and it was more than a decade ago, and I didn't really like it, but sure, a, you can have Roadhouse. It's, it's a fun time in the... Th- it's, I'm, not, I'm not out here saying Roadhouse is good, mind you, but it was fun. Um, also, uh, because we were talking, Miller's Crossing also would be a really good... Ori- that's original, right? That's not adapted It has something? to be. Yeah, the Coens at this point hadn't done adaptations really what would have been their what would the is the lady killers their first adaptation uh depends on would you count oh brother where i, I guess yeah adaptation? I, I guess depends on where you fall on oh brother which i'm 50 50 on that really it, it's a uh, inspired by uh but uh it's inspired by so they claim so they claim i mean it it uh, it has a credit in the opening credits uh based on uh homer's odyssey which there's 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 bits in there that have their their parallels but uh yeah i'm just looking at other 1990 movies now that uh i can't say for certain uh whether or not some of these are original or adapted so i can't uh is jacob's La- jacob's ladder i think is adapted from something right I also don't know if the screenplay is really what I go to that movie for, but uh, that is also a good movie in this year. Um, that is just the Wikipedia page for uh, Jacob's Ladder from uh, the Bible. <laughs> that is not the movie. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not going to go too much deeper into figuring that out. Uh, but yeah, uh, weird original screenplay year having not seen the movies just like on the fact that most of them like don't have like not even that they're necessarily poorly remembered but just they're not really remembered they're just sort of movies that are there and not not even really in the oscars conversation elsewhere either very much i don't know uh, is there anything else uh, to say about this year's Oscars, or do we want to move on to closing thoughts? I think we can move on to closing thoughts. All right. So, in your fantasy world, where you get to pick all of the nominations, 
what nominations would you have given to Longtime Companion? Well, first of all, Bruce Davison can keep his nomination. And I would also throw a nomination to Stephen Caffrey just because uh, I really like him, even if I have keep calling him Cruffy throughout this entire podcast. <laughs> um, I'm obviously giving it the Best Picture nomination. Um, yeah. I might even give it a win even over Goodfellas because it, I really like this film a lot. Uh, and I don't love Goodfellas as much as many others uh, do. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I'm one of the people, I actually like Casino more than Goodfellas, but that's just me. Um, I would also give uh, Norman Renee a Best Director nomination uh, for, for the scene in which he's talking Bruce Davison, uh, dialing him down alone. Yeah. It should be worth it. Um, so That's we get picture, point. director, two supporting actor nominations in screenplay, and then, as we said, we sort of hit a ceiling because this doesn't, un unless you give it a random editing nomination, there's not really a technical category where you could really justify giving it the norm. Yeah, I mean, the editing is is a pretty, it, it does a good job of maintaining the, the a, a bunch of different characters and interconnected storylines, but even like comparing it against other movies of this era that are doing interconnected storylines, it's not nearly as flashy with the editing. And it's, I mean, it's basically more the structure which comes from the screenplay rather than yes. the editing. It's it's, yeah. it's not like the editor decided, oh, you know what, let's just cut out everything that doesn't happen on these nine days and yeah. uh, do just them. So uh, while it, it's the kind of thing that if you really love it, you could probably throw it the random editing nomination because I sometimes have a feeling that the Academy is throwing at least half their editing nominations just out to movies they love uh, but can't really say why this is a particular feat in editing like green um, book yeah yeah like yeah. green book or, or like driving miss daisy right yeah or uh another uh racism in cars movie uh <laughs> of which i'm sure there probably is so so you you won't find any uh, below the line categories here. It doesn't have. A, I don't think it really has a score. There's at it's, least not one that I particularly yeah. noticed. It's more song based. The more more of a soundtrack. Uh, uh, yeah, pulling in stuff like that. But but not original songs. So yeah. not an original song nomination either. So you're really just above the line. But above the line, I would give it pretty much everything it's eligible for. Yeah. Oh, you're telling me that YMCA wasn't written for this movie? Color me shocked. Um, yeah, I don't know if I can get quite there with some of those. Uh, I did really like and respect this movie. I don't know if I would go quite as far as picture and director, but I'm absolutely keeping Bruce Davison. Absolutely throwing this as screenplay nomination. Um, there's other really good... Like We didn't talk that much about his performance, but... Um, oh. Let me find his name again. Oh, I closed out of the page. Oh no, give me a second. Um uh, the actor that plays Sean. Uh Mark Lamos is really good. Uh and does a really good job of of showing the decline of that character over the course of it. And also even before he uh even before he's diagnosed, even before he's afflicted, it's just a really good characterization of this like 
TV writer for a soap opera that like knows that what he's doing knows that his show is you know a soap opera uh in in the way that the movie is making it you know a standard soap opera and uh it's just a fun character that you really feel for as he has this very slow decline um i already alluded to to this being a very packed supporting actor lineup for me but in a vacuum he's absolutely in there because it's a it's a very good performance that I would not bat an eye at a nomination for. Uh, and yeah, I think that that's where I come down, but uh, wouldn't, I also wouldn't turn my nose up at a, a picture director nomination either. And I think that'll do it for this episode. Thank you so much for uh, coming on and talking about this movie. Thank you for bringing this one to me. Thank you. Thank you for letting me have it with apparently several others also saying they're interested in it yeah of course uh, uh uh always always a pleasure to have you on the show uh, where can people find you and your stuff well i feel like i'm fading away from twitter a bit and i haven't really arrived anywhere else so for the moment you can find me on letterbox as christopher and where i probably do the most things and i'm also, Mr. Whiplash, your curator for the actor and German subcategories on Sporkle. So if you feel like quizzing, you can find me there as well. Right on. Check out all that stuff. You can find this show on Twitter and Letterboxd at Lone Acting Noms and on Instagram at The Lone Acting Nominees. That'll be it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Young man. There's no need to feel down I said, young man Pick yourself off the ground Young man Cause you're in a new town There's no need to be unhappy <laughs> It's fun to stay at the YMCA It's fun to stay at the <laughs> you can get yourself clean, you can have a good meal, you can do whatever you feel.